This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and today I'm bringing you an author interview with Rita Chang Epic. So her new book has, it's her debut fiction novel, actually. It's called Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. And it's just come out. She's actually actively on book tour right now. We talk at the end about how you can follow her and see if she's going to be in a city near where you live to go and see her talk. And when I first heard about this book, I... I just described it's the story of a legendary Chinese female pirate queen. And I thought, oh, is that, is that Zhang Yisao, the, the woman who I did a podcast episode about last year? And then I read, and the name of the character in this book is Sek Young. And I thought, oh, it's about a different person. And then I thought, oh, is this a fictional person? No, it's, it's the same person. That's, she's AKA, so Zhang Yisao is AKA Ching Shi, AKA Madame Ching, AKA Sek Young. And the very first question that I asked Rita was how she chose that as the name to use for her in this book. And, and then we just got to talking about it. And it was really interesting. If you remember that episode from last year, then you'll remember sort of the broad strokes maybe of the story of Sek Young that she worked on. She was a sex worker in a flower boat. And then she was taken off by the pirate king to be his wife. And then she became one of the most successful pirates of all time. And then eventually she retired. And that's, I don't mean this isn't a spoiler for her book. I'm just recalling uh, what we talked about in that episode from last year. And then Rita takes that story or sort of the broad strokes of what we know about Sek Young from history and turns into this beautiful novel of a woman and her story to survive in wild circumstances against great odds. And it's so interesting. It's such a good book. And I was really so excited when Rita agreed to be on the podcast to talk about it. So please enjoy this chat between myself and Rita Chang Epic. Okay, so I'm joined today by Rita Chang Epic, who is the author of a book, the main character of the book I've spoken about on the podcast before, but under a different name. So actually, my first question, actually, first, welcome, Rita. Hi, <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. But yeah, first I did just want to clarify, because if any listeners have listened to, like last year I did an episode about this person, but I used a different name. I called the person Zhang Yisao when I was doing my podcast about it. And I remember I had to make a decision of like, what name am I going to use talking about this person? You made a different decision, obviously. So in your book, the main character is Sek Young. And can you mm-hmm. talk about just the name and how you decided that that was the name you're going to use? 
Yeah. So this particular character, uh, or I should say historical figure, has gone by many names. Um, But the two most commonly used ones are Zheng Yisao, as you mentioned, and uh, Qing Shi is the other one. I decided to not go with those names because those are not really names. They are epithets. They both translate to Zheng's wife. So there's a way in which uh, her identity and her individuality was already kind of getting erased a little by her association to her husband, right? She doesn't have a name. She is so-and-so's wife. And, you know, the the written historical records on her are not the best, but there are some records that indicate that she was born as Sick Young. And so that's the name that I ultimately decided to go with. Yeah, I I mean, which makes total sense. Makes absolute sense because you're telling the story about her as a person um, to really, she was not born the wife of so-and-so like that. And also, I mean, we get into that, but first I'm just curious to know, when did you first hear about Sekyung's story? Do you remember when you first came across it? Yeah. So I grew up in Taiwan and in, so stories about this particular historical figure have been floating around since I was a child. And usually she is relegated to a kind of secondary uh, supporting role, right? Like, oh, she, there was this pirate king and she was his wife and, you know, she was also very fierce, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I was aware that she existed, but I really didn't consider writing a whole novel about her until around the time of the 2016 election in the U.S., where um, obviously there was a lot of discourse going on about women in leadership positions. And I, I became particularly interested in women, complicated women leaders. So these are not you know, ones that you can easily point your daughter to and say, like, when you grow up, you know, you want to be just like her, right? Like these are, so th- that's where my interest lies as a writer, the, the sort of complicated, messy characters. That's when she kind of really bubbled, frothed to the surface of my mind. And I started working on this. And so when you started working on the novel, what what sources did you, did you turn to to try and because, I mean, I'm just thinking, I think this is the first time I've interviewed someone from the podcast who's researched the same person I've already researched. And I, <laughs> I found it challenging because so much of the stuff about her is really vague, you know, because she was a woman, um, because she was not a royal woman. You know, there's not records of like she was born here. And here's what her le- it was just kind of like, well, here's the legend. People say this about her. So like, what did you turn to just to get sort of like a picture, just to get the, the sort of like skeleton of what this, her life story was? I don't know, a mediumship, seances. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I, so it, you're, you're right. And I think maybe because we don't have very detailed records about her, that is in a way what made her appealing as a character for me to write. You know, primarily I'm a, fic, I'm a fiction writer, right? I, I do a lot of research. I would like to think I did my due diligence in terms of the history, but at the same time, I need to have room to invent things. Um, and, you know, whereas like, his, you know, academic historians, they don't have that luxury. They actually need to try to make this, you know, their their words as accurate as possible. But um, for me, I think I actually, because so much of the stories about her are orally transmitted, they're not, you know, official in the sense, like it's not a part of some Qing dynasty document somewhere, although there are some official documents I'd love to talk about later. But mostly I was reading a lot about the society 
at the time because there are records of what it was like to be a like there are entire books written on the pirating culture of the South China area in the 1800s. Uh, there are entire books written about all of the rebellions that were going on all over the country during this particular Chinese emperor's reign. And so in a way, I was kind of narrowing or kind of zooming in or narrowing down, I'm not sure what analogy I want here, based on the larger historical records, right? So if all the records are saying, hey, this was a really bad period for peasants because there were all of these famines happening and, you know, one month's worth of rice cost, you know, many months worth of wages, then you kind of think, okay, well, how how might this have interfaced with pirate fleets, you know, and, and why people chose to, quote unquote, choose or chose to become pirates because for many of them, it wasn't a choice. Yeah. I, I, for, for me, it was a lot of academic sources about the larger environment and then weaving that in with the oral storytelling of around this particular historical figure. And I think you just alluded to this, but what, so what specific sources did you find for the oral storytelling? Just written records somewhere? So I think a lot of it is just like in uh, in the Chinese language, there are some kind of like, you know, like here are some oral, you know, tales that have been passed down by people from about this particular historical figure. And so I and I speak, I mean, you know, my, my parents would complain that I don't speak it well enough, but I do speak and read some in um, in Chinese. And on top of that, there was this really, um, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, uh, There, I found this really fascinating document that was written by, I believe it was, it was an English merchant who was petitioning the English government to take a more active stance in terms of eradicating the pirates of uh, the uh, South China Sea, because at the time, the, the, the pirates were basically so successful that they were cutting into the profit margins of all the European traders who were coming in. I found this really fascinating document written by this guy who who had lived in the region around the time, had talked to a bunch of the pirates. And actually there were, he, he talks about how in one of the fleets with the red banner, there was this pirate queen and her husband and how actually, you know, he was like, actually they, they treated the prisoners, they, they treat the European prisoners okay. And uh, they, they, you know, were far meaner to their fellow Chinese prisoners. And then this uh, document also talked a lot about things like how did they do, how they did uh, ransom exchanges. So it's like if, if, if they kidnap somebody and the other party is able to pay, like, you know, he like laid out in detail all of these things about how like they would send out a boat with the money on it and blah, blah, blah. So a lot of that information is really stuff that, I mean, I probably could have made it up, but I, the fact that I was able to find this in the records, I think, I hope made the novel feel felt made the novel's world felt more feel more lived in if that makes any sense no absolutely and just like having read your novel which i really really enjoyed the you really it's a i don't know you know there's so many novels that are written about like regency england or like victorian london where i think authors writing about those have a sort of shorthand and expectation that the audience like the readers would know that but you were setting up a scene of a world that most of the readers, I think, are going to be like, where is this time and place? I like that there is very early in the book, you have a very, like, I love this, a very dismissive comment about Napoleon Bonaparte, just, (laughs) which also just really set the scene for me as a reminder of like, okay, this is the time period. Like, okay, Napoleon is also doing this. And then all this is happening with South China Sea. Like the Portuguese are there, the Dutch are there. Like, 
so yeah, what was that like to just have to to write? Like you did all this research, you set up a time and place. You didn't want your book to be a thousand pages long, explaining exactly what was going on. And I think you do. You do do a great job of really explaining what's going on, but in a in a way where it's still always Sek Young's story. So it's all from her point of view. Like, was there a lot of research that you had to? I'm sure you read a lot more than what you put in the book. So how did you decide kind of which parts to include? Yeah. And, and thank you so much, by the way, for pointing out that little that little section at the beginning, because that and that was absolutely the intent. Right. I was trying to stay in second spirit, like from the perspective of somebody like her, like she might be aware that someone named Napoleon is like doing some stuff over there in Europe. But like this is not a part of her day to day life. Right. The, the same way, like, you know, folks who are living in the U.S. might not really think a lot about the day to day lives of people who are like all the way, you know, across the world. So, but, but it was meant to situate um, a reader who might not be as, in, as uh, familiar with uh, Chinese history. Like, oh, okay, this is like, we're talking like that early 1800s you know, uh, period. So thank you so much for picking up on that. And, you know, so I think the first thing is that I did have to leave a lot of research out and I'm not going to pretend like all of that was a, was an easy decision. A lot of it was, you know, decided in conjunction with my editor who, you know, we went back and forth a few times to say, is this absolutely essential information for people to know, right? Like, is does this actually ground the reader in an important way? Or are you just geeking out about the different types of weapons that they use? <laughs> you know, and, and, and so we had to make some calls. Ultimately, I think um, different. Some people will think that it's that I made the right calls, and some people will think that I made the incorrect calls, and that's that's fine. That's usually how um, fiction works. Um, the, but the, the the thing that I really tried to keep in mind the whole time that I was going through this editing process was trust your reader. Like that that was the thing that I kept thinking: trust your reader. I choose to believe that the people who would pick up my book and read my book are you know, intelligent readers who can infer from context, who can uh, figure things out as they go along and who are willing to figure things out, right? Like there's some some people who really prefer to have everything explained to them and that's okay. But like, I, I don't, you know, like I think I am targeting a very specific group of readers, like people who are willing to immerse themselves in a world and kind of figure things out as they go along. So that, I think that for me was a useful guiding principle. And you also, in this book, you incorporate some, there's a goddess who is mentioned, who is a kind of a, a supporting character in the story. Can you talk about the, um, your research about, I don't know what that would be, like the, the religious beliefs or the, I don't know, folktales, like what, where did you get that information from or the, the idea to include that in the story? So I, the the goddess that we're talking about for listeners is a, a goddess named Mazu, who is a sea goddess worshipped in many parts of uh, East Asia. Well, not just East Asia. I think um, she's also worshipped in Southeast Asia and some other places. But um, the idea is that when I was doing research for the novel, I came across this little bit of information, which I love, which is that pirates actually were you know, we don't typically think of pirates as spiritual people or, or you know, or kind of uh, people of faith. But they, because so many of them were fisher folk before they moved over to piracy, right? Usually it was desperation and, and starvation that drove them over to piracy. They brought with them the spiritual beliefs that they had as fisher, fisher folk. And uh, one of those uh, spiritual beliefs is 
a belief in the sea goddess Mazu, which makes I think perfect sense if you if you all your all your time at sea, you're like, please don't, you know, no, please no freak storms that like are going to kill me and everybody else I, I I love. So when I fa- found out that piece of information that the pirates were actually you know quite religious slash superstitious, depending on how you think about it, and that they actually used to sail around with temple boats. So again, like imagine like a temple on land and then plop it on top of a junk ship. And that's, they would sail around with that thing in their fleet so that they could worship while they were uh, farther from land. I, I thought this is just such, again, this is, I think this is information that makes the world feel more lived in. Um, and I decided to add that in. And the, the other part, sorry, that I haven't said yet is that Amazu is actually still a very beloved goddess in Taiwan where I grew up. So if you go to Taiwan, there are temples to her everywhere. You know, there are like stores sell items with her image on, I mean, her, her sort of, you know, we don't know what she looks like because she's a mythical figure, but um, with her imagined image on um, like store packaging and things like that. And so I grew up around a lot of the, the that culture of Mazu worship. And um, in many ways, this writing about her in the book was a, a little bit like my love letter to my the place where I grew up, right? Where where this thing is such a, I mean, like tr- there are so many, I, I, I don't think uh, people who are unfamiliar with it can fathom how many festivals and um, celebrations there are every year in Taiwan around this one. Well, and I also, I like the, the fact that it's a female deity, like it's a goddess of the sea. And then you're telling the story about a woman who becomes a leader, like, and how, how Sakyong might have turned to her as, I don't know, in, in that sort of like woman to woman sort of way. I found that interesting as well. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I, I, thought, I was thinking a lot about the role and the function of myths as I was writing this novel, right? Like, what are, wh- why do human beings have myths? Usually it's to, sometimes it's to be a guide for our lives, right? Like, this is what people do in myths, so this is what you should do, or this is what people did in myths, and therefore this is what you shouldn't do. So sometimes it's as a gu- behavioral guide. Sometimes it's uh, as a way of uh, explaining the world or of uh, giving the world a sense of order that maybe isn't actually in the world. You know what I mean? Like this happens because of this. And like, this is the way that the world, this is the cosmology of the the universe and this is how everything is set up. So I was thinking a lot about the, the, the ways in which human beings use myths. And then I was thinking about um, Sek Young's early years on the flower boats and what to survive something like that, what did she need to kind of get her through one day and, you know, through through each day and the next? And I realized, okay, what if she told herself stories? You know, like what if she used these myths that she grew up with as a guide for what she thinks she should do, what she thinks she should look forward to, et cetera. And then also as her behavior gets worse and worse, right? Like as she kind of falls deeper into the pirating world, how is she using myths about Mazu to justify her own misbehavior? So yeah, so I think I was thinking a lot about the the ways in which human beings use myths and the ways in which, for, for, for both good and ill, the ways that human beings use myths, that it's, it, 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 it's really far less about the myths themselves than about how Sekyung herself interprets the myths through her particular point of view, if that makes any sense. No, it does. Absolutely. And I think for her just thinking she's living a life path that she doesn't know anyone who's done that before. There's not a person. She doesn't have her own ancestor to be like, well, how did she handle it when this happened to her? So she has to turn to somebody to be like, well, what, how do you make this decision? How do you get through this? Yeah. And that becomes sort of her not role model, but just like that sort of guiding principle. It's like, what did Maju do? How did she? Yeah. Exactly. And you just mentioned also the flower boats. And I really want to talk about that aspect of it because in just in my research, when I was doing the episode, like I really focused mostly on just what we know about the pirating career, but you really sit there and like, what does it mean to be a young person like in sexual slavery? And then what does it mean to then be taken by a man to become his wife, which is really another transactional form of sexual slavery. It's not like, oh, yeah, she's been rescued from it. It's like, no, now she's just here in this different way. Yeah. How did you, 
how did you decide to approach that? Like you really, you don't shy away from the fact of like, what was this like? What was this? Yeah. Just talk about that, that aspect of the story. How did you, are there records about what the flower boats were like? And so you could imagine what it was like to be living there. Yeah. So uh, the, the flower boat scenes were actually the hardest for me to write because I was trying to walk a tightrope. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a believer in, you know, making things traumatic for tra- trauma's sake. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think there are many of us with trauma histories and that to kind of glorify in it and to be like, look how, t-, you know, to, to kind of like get into every gory detail. I, I don't personally, I mean, you know, I know there are people who've done it, but I don't personally see the, the, the point in that. But at the same time, uh, in some of the records that I found, these were uh, Chinese records, that she she herself was abducted by pirates and uh, sold into sexual slavery. So I felt like it would be, in a way, dishonoring her history if we didn't, if we pretended that that part of her life never happened, even though it's an incredibly unpleasant part of her life. So I decided to write this thing with the the intent of not focusing on the trauma of it, although there definitely is trauma there, but focusing on the the social social cultural role that these flower boats played in the quote unquote underworld at the time, and the role that these women who worked or were forced to work on these boats played in the quote unquote underworld at the time, because these boats were de facto information hubs. People say all sorts of things. You know, people share all sorts of things when when they're at these establishments. And one of the one of the things that it, the history is pretty clear on about Sek Young is that she was an excellent power broker or information broker, I should say. That she was really good at kind of listening to everybody's stories and then figuring out how to connect the dots and you know to kind of like make the necessary inferences and conclusions and that this was the reason or the main reason maybe there were other reasons but this was one of the main reasons why the the pirate commander saying yeah uh, <laughs> we'll say decided to marry her it was really more of a decision on his part than than on her part but um it, it you know like I, I i know that sometimes people have tried to recast this as like a love story like oh he fell in love with her because she was so beautiful. And, and I was like, no, let's let's kind of stick to what we actually know, which was that she was incredibly shrewd and she was an incredible information broker. And that this was, he decided that this would be incredibly beneficial to his fleet to have somebody like her. And can you just describe, um, I for, you don't say exactly what's in the book, but you're talking about like flower boats. She's like, it's, it's neither a boat nor <laughs> uh, flowers are not involved. So you explained them in a much better way than I had when I was researching this as well. I had pictured, I don't know, some sort of, you know, like a riverboat in like New Orleans or something, just kind of like a big ship that just like floats along doing stuff. But you really explained it's like, no, it's a bunch of shitty boats that don't actually go to sea. They're just, it's just floating beds on little things. Yeah. Yeah. Back then there were these entire, again, usually these were, you know, uh, people who didn't, you know, who were poor, who didn't have money. And instead of living in homes, it, you know, it's like there were these entire villages that would spring spring up along the coast of crappy little boats. Like these are not like majestic ships. These are like little, you know, like crappy little boats that are um, tied together and then like moored to the, to the dock. And people 
people live their you know entire lives in these in these spaces and so some some of these boats were used for flower boat purposes which is to say that they were used as establishments uh, for you know sex alcohol all of those kinds of gambling all of those types of things sorry does that does that answer your question no it does it does absolutely because um and so there's like you had in your research you just came across descriptions of how these sorts of like floating cities would kind of work I guess yeah yeah exactly and then you also talked very early on just about how you're drawn to complicated messy characters so in getting and that's I think such an interesting that's what I'm drawn to as well as a reader to read about people who are not it's not a straightforward narrative how did you balance that writing a character who is messy who is complicated who does who is to be a successful pirate like you have scenes of her like chopping people's heads off like she's to lean into that but also making her be sympathetic like how did you balance that out as a writer yeah i that is a great question and uh, you know honestly i think i'm sure if you talk to some readers they'll say she wasn't sympathetic at all and that's fine right like i think we all we're we're all able to sympathize with some things we're not able to sympathize with others i i think for me i kept I just kept trying to remind myself, okay, what would a what would a person who's neither a psychopath nor a saint, how would a person like that adapt to a situation like this? Do, do you know what I mean? So like we're not talking about somebody with like no more, you know, no moral compass whatsoever, no sense of, you know, empathy or sympathy whatsoever. So we're not talking about that, but we're also not talking about somebody who like would willing, willingly kind of sacrifice their own life for the good of others, right? And and just kind of trying to think of, okay, if her prime, if she's just an ordinary person who was thrust into these very, very uh, difficult circumstances, and her primary drive is to stay alive, that that's what she wants. She, she's just like, I think like most people, she just doesn't want to die. What are the things that she would be willing to do? And what are the aspects of herself that she would be willing to give up? You know what I mean? Like, what are the aspects of humanity that somebody would be willing to give up if they felt, um, again, I'm not saying that she actually didn't have a choice. I think there's some decision points in the book where she thinks she doesn't have a choice, but it's like, no, actually, girl, you do. But um, but it's, you know, for somebody who thinks they don't have a choice, what are the, the aspects of humanity that they would be able to give up if they felt like their lives came down to it? And so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that she is sympathetic in the sense that she is human, that she wants what so many human beings do, which is to, to live. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what's more relatable than that, really being in a situation and just wanting to survive it. Right. And actually, I just wanted to talk about, so she's captured, married to this pirate king. And this is all very early on in the book, so I don't think this counts as spoilers. So she he <laughs> dies on like page one, right? Basically, or he's stabbed. And so then she's kind of left in this decision point because the people who are left to maybe take over the fleet are her, and then also this young man who had also been captured by the same pirate. And then so in their relationship, and that was also, I really liked, it's just so interesting to read your book having read the history before because the history, like just what I read, English translations of things, which is kind of like, well, she was on a flower boat and then she left with him and then he died and then she married this other guy and off they go. But you just like sat to be like, what does that mean? Like, what does, and I was like, oh my gosh, what does that mean to just be there? (laughs) And I like the, um, 
the way that you portray her relationship with the other young man, Cheng Po, right? Is his name? Mm-hmm. Um, and how they were both had been captured, how they both had been used by the pirate king, and then they're left behind and it's just the two of them. And that's such an interesting, like the the trauma that they share, but then having to move on together without him. I thought that was how did you approach his character, thinking about what it was like for a young boy to have been in a sort of parallel situation to her? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. People tend to ask about her and not about him. And he obviously, he's one of the main characters. So thank you for bringing him up. I, yeah, so again, the historical records actually indicate that he he too was abducted by Zeng Yatsu, right? This, this isn't a he willingly joined the fleet situation. This is a one day he was living at home and the next day he wasn't kind of, kind of deal. And so from the early, from early on, I, I, I think there's a line in a movie from like the nineties. I'm trying to remember exactly what, but it's like two porcupines trying to get to know each other or like two, like, like they're both people who've been through a lot of hurt and who have, you know, who didn't start, unlike Zeng Yat, who was born into this, and again, this is a fact, he was born into this very wealthy pirating family that's been pirating for centuries. Everybody knew that they were pirates. Nobody did anything about it. And so, whereas he and Cheng Po and uh, Sekyung, they both come from, you know, normal, humble origins and were um, press ganged into this kind of a lifestyle, essentially. And so I saw, I saw him as a, a kind of a distorted mirror of Sekyang. So they're not exactly the same, but they share this fundamental, they, they share in a way the same origins. And so I was, in, in talking about their relationship with each other, each other, I was trying to play with how, how two people like this can or can't learn to trust each other and to kind of see themselves in each other because um because i i do think the tension the sort of discomfort between them or the tension between them is uh is a huge part of this you know like even that even after they decide maybe this is spoiler i don't know i'll just say it that even after they decide we're going to run the the fleet together that it's not just the done deal right like that there are continued tensions between them just simply because they are i i think they they won't I don't know if they would ever be able to trust each other completely because of the pasts. All right. That was a little bit unclear. Sorry. Rambly. No, it was, it was an excellent answer to a rambly question. And it just made me think, cause I don't just, again, like it was so interesting to read your book, having researched this last year myself. And I was just like, Oh yeah, I know what's going to happen. It's like, I know that he's going to die. I know they're going to get married, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, oh, no, but what does that mean? And it's just like to really think, what does it mean for these people? I was thinking about, you know, you hear about stories, I think it was like in Cleveland, where the guy kidnapped a couple of women, five women or something, and they all had children. It's like, well, what if that man died and those women had to work together and they were on a pirate ship? (laughs) And (laughs) and it's just like the, the, like they're, I don't want to be like simplistic about it, but like the man who kidnapped them, like Sek Young and Chung Po, who was their abuser in many ways, he dies and then they're left behind. But it's not just like, okay, let's just like sit with our trauma. It's like, no, like we have to take over a pirate fleet now. Yeah, exactly. And, but also, I don't know. I just thought it was so interesting to think about like what the trauma was like for that, for them to have to live on. I don't know. It's just like, 
when you read the stories like this happened, this happened, this happened, I'm like, okay, those are historical facts. But in your book, I'm just like, no, like, but what was it like for a person to go through that? Yeah. And again, thank you so much for saying that, because I I think that's the beauty of historical fiction, right? I mean, history, uh, this is something I've said before, but like, I, I, I think history gives us the, the bones, the skeleton. Do you know what I mean? Like it kind of tells us like this battle happened here. Um, this person died, you know, this year, et cetera. But like, ultimately the, the beauty of fiction is I think it can, you know, literally kind of like it can flesh out the rest of the body. It can, you know, provide the organs, it can provide the blood, it can provide the heart, like all of these things that the historical facts are kind of a scaffolding for, um, uh, fiction provides the, 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 the rest of what makes a human body, a human body. And so, yeah, I would, that's, I mean, it, we had the facts or a lot of the facts, but like, I, I think what the primary thing that I was grappling with, with in this book was, how do I tell the story not from a an academic historian's angle, but from a human angle of what you know is spe- uh, specifically Sek Young's angle? So, and this is the final question. And you mentioned this, I think, in your very first answer to my very first question. So you started thinking about her and this project around the wake of like the 2016 election. I think you said, mm-hmm. and now the book is coming out, and it's 2023. And so, how do you see this book sort of? in interacting with our current, the current state of affairs? I honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, I think that the people who doubt the ability of women to lead are, you know, I think they're still there. You know, I think where this isn't, um, this isn't going to, I, I, unfortunately, that's not, a, that's a problem that's not going to go away anytime soon. I, I actually think from, some of the early feedback I've received, a lot of what people resonated with were the issues around class and wealth disparity. So, you know, like when I started writing this, I was thinking a lot about women in leadership positions. And but but then, you know, I was also starting to think a lot about like wealth disparity. And and I think some of the feedback I've gotten is that they feel like there are a lot of parallels to to our current time, you know, like when after COVID started, right, there were, there were all these problems in our society that may not have been very glaring before that all of a sudden became very glaring, right? Like, so people all of a sudden became food insecure. They became housing insecure. Like, you know, people lost their jobs and couldn't kind of find new jobs to kind of replace uh, to replace their income. And so I do think, I mean, you know, this is, I'm not the first to say this, but history tends to repeat itself. And so I think there is a way in which even though this is a very different world that I'm writing about, that there are some aspects of it that are still very true today. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're actively on like your book. We're talking a bit before this podcast actually gets published, but I was checking the dates and you're still going to be on book tour when this episode comes out. So where where can people um, see where find out what you're up to and where they can see you doing one of these talks. You have a website, right? Yeah. So uh, people can find me on, uh, so R-C-H-E, so like archetypes. Um, so basically archetypes without the A, that's the easiest way to do it, .com. And my tour uh, dates are listed there as are additional bits of information about the book. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your book tour era to talk to me about this book. It was I just want to tell you, when I first came across the description of the book, like several months ago, I thought, oh, a Chinese female pirate. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's that person who I read about. And I, I was like, oh, no, it's a different name. And I was like, oh, no, that's the same person. <laughs> so it, it was really exciting and cool for me to read this book. 
with some some knowledge of what what the story was and then just to see how you develop that and everything was really interesting for me and I think it'll be equally good for people who don't know the story at all so yeah I mean thank you and yeah that's that's my hope that even if you've heard the story before that you know the larger facts of the story I hope that people will be able to derive some interest and enjoyment from kind of how everything is tied together so well, thank you so much for joining me today thank you for having me so again, the novel is called Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea by Rita Chang Epic. And her website is archetypes.com. So archetypes without the A. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So you can go there to learn more about her and about the book and also to see where she's going to be on her book tour, which is actively happening the day that this episode is published. It's such a good book. I think I think you will all really enjoy it, not just because of the Napoleon Bonaparte slander early on, although that might lure some people in, but also it's just such everything she talked about. I think if you heard this interview, you're going to want to read the book and it's so good. So if you want to keep up with this podcast, including finding transcripts to these episodes, you go to vulgarhistory.com. I'm also on Instagram at vulgarhistorypod. I'm on TikTok at vulgarhistory. And I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Writer, where you can get early ad-free access to all of the episodes of this podcast. I do want to mention the transcriptions are provided by Aveline Malik of The Wordery. And we're going to be back in a few days with the next episode of Vulgar History. I'm going to keep going. There's, there's way more. There's more books and more authors that I'm excited to talk to you about, as well as our regular weekly episodes. So there's Lots of content coming. And while you're waiting for the next episode of Vulgar History, why not read Rita's book? Because it's amazing. Anyway, until next time, my friends, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.